say certainly each piece or like you know sets of the pieces were they were a reflection point i actually had um in in front of my uh screen at the time in my office i had like a rolling 30 days of every single painting so i would change them out every single day and it gave me like this visual progress of what i was doing and you know there i mean certainly times where i dealt with anger issues uh, times where I was uh, maybe more depressive times where I felt like I was more joyful times, you know, just kind of that roller coaster of emotion. And uh, I could see that um, in the paintings, at least, you know, when I was looking at them. Hello and welcome to Grief, Gratitude and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right into today's episode. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to the podcast today. You will be uh, hearing this conversation that I'm having with Preston Zeller today. He is an artist with accomplishments across various multiple mediums, including film, photography, music, and fine art. And today we will be talking particularly about how he used art uh, in the process of grieving the passing of his brother who passed away in 2019. Um, So I am excited to have this conversation. Welcome. Hey, Kendra. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And uh, we will be talking a lot about the upcoming documentary that you made uh, called The Art of Grieving. Am I saying I'm like, I'm not reading it at the moment. So I hope uh, yeah, I did get it right. The Art of Grieving, (laughs) which I think it's a beautiful title, because even if you even if the documentary didn't have to do about art, just the time there is an art in the process of grieving, mm. even if it's not an actual medium. So it's just so perfect, but a perfect title. So welcome once again. Thank you. Yeah. I'm uh, so, looking forward to chatting with you. Yes. And I was telling you, we were just going to be talking just, uh, just candidly and just uh, about life a little bit. And we'll cover all the different aspects about you as well as your uh, brother's passing and the grief. So tell us more about you first and your family, um, the family you grew up with, and then the family you chose as well, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I grew up in uh, California and Southern California and um, I, you know, one of three kids, uh, parents who um, fortunately they're still married, uh, which is, which is great. And um, a middle child. So I grew up with an older brother, younger sister, and, you know, we were about three, four years apart, each of us. But yeah, we had a pretty like, I guess, typical kind of middle class upbringing and, um, you know, enjoyed going to the beach, played lots of sports, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, eventually, uh, you know, I went away to uh, college and studied film production and, and that kind of stuff and uh, worked in the film industry and uh you know i've been in the arts most of my life um and it's you know i started out doing kind of fine art-esque stuff when i was or just art classes i guess you'd say when when i was young my my mom's an artist and so learned a lot of that from her um but it really manifested in, in uh the way of music for a long time so i've been a musician for a long time as well that's what i pursued uh, for many years and then, yeah, went into film, yet another kind of like creative medium. Um, and then I really got disenchanted with the music industry at some point and just completely got out of it. Um, went into more like a marketing field and, you know, kind of continued to do, uh, you know, film videography related stuff there. Uh, but in 2011, I want to say, <clears throat> met my wife and we got married a year later. And, 
uh, yeah, I had three kids pretty quickly. So they're all like 18 months apart and uh, lived in, um, moved to Washington state for a while where my wife was from and, you know, started uh, raising kids there. And then, yeah, that kind of led up to 2019 where, uh, you know, my brother passed away and a lot of things kind of changed from there as well. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the, the, the nutshell version. The, the, the umbrella version of your family dynamics. My gosh, as you're talking, we have, I always, uh, I ask people also like where they've lived, where they're from. Um, I find it uh, intriguing also when people move. I've moved and I actually lived in every single state you have moved in so far. Oh, wow. Yeah, we both live in Texas right now. Uh, I went to college in California. And when I moved here from Colombia, I lived in Washington. So (laughs) you're you're only missing (laughs) two of my states. You're missing Massachusetts and Georgia. And then then you would have lived, we would have lived in all the same. Yeah, so those are the two extra That's, states I've lived in. <laughs> you know, I will say uh, I had a pretty, I never lived on the East Coast, but I had a pretty formidable um, experience in college where I lived in, I studied abroad in France and uh, worked at the Cannes Film Festival and stuff there. That's wonderful. And so I was in Europe for like five months, got to go to 11 countries while I was there. And it, it was pretty scrappy. You know, I, was, I just had a, a backpack and I was going by myself on trains and whatnot. Um, but I was goodness, 19 at the time. Um, and then I worked at the film festival again the year later, but, uh, I, you know, that was a lot of traveling in a short period of time in, uh, you know, uh, really impactful year and ages of my life. And, uh, you know, someday I would like to get back to doing that again, you know, probably post kids and stuff, but, Mm um, yeah, otherwise I was pretty much all West Coast until a couple of years ago. Until now, yeah, Texas. You know, it is, uh, do you find it that there's a lot of growth that happens with travel, like with those kind of experiences, a lot of growth opportunities and those changes? Oh, well, for sure. I mean, I, you know, you're seeing, uh, of course, different cultures. And e- even in the U.S., I think, you know, there's exposure to different cultures. But once you get into a different language, And, you know, places like, um, I mean, pretty much anywhere but the U.S. that has really old roots, right? Um, You know, I was in Europe. I I ventured over to Greece at some point, which you're kind of like, you know, teetering on going in the Middle East. And just the history there is more like thousands of years old. And, the you know, you just experience those cultures in such a different way. I went, I, I learned French while I was there. That's part of the reason why I went there. So, um, you know, getting to like learn a different language and speak that language with people in that culture is, is also like, it's hugely, hugely gratifying and, and revealing about yourself and, you know, what you learn about people. So I, I love it. I love traveling. That's awesome. No, thank you for sharing that. And I, I know that, um, that sometimes people don't, realize even if you haven't moved anywhere in your life, like if you have lived where you were born, yeah. um, you, you don't even see like how much there, there's a grief component even in those aspects of, of moving too. there's this shedding, leaving behind mm. and so forth as well. But then there's also then that growth that occurs in, in that discovering of either new cultures, new, you have to find new French set of friendships every time you move mm. somewhere. Sometimes people have to find their, a new church or a new, you know, every everything, right? A new job. If they've moved for a job, then they, you know, it's a it's a lot of change that happens in a move. Um, so so anyway, so I, I'm I, I'm always curious about that because I feel that even if we have not experienced grief in the terms of death, which both of us have, and actually I've also had a sister, I had a sister who passed away, so we share the loss of a sibling in common. Um, you have still experienced grief before that, just not oh, in yeah. the shape of death. And therefore you have some aspects of tools that you didn't even know you did have. Um, so, um, so anyway, so thank you for sharing that. Now let's yeah. go into uh, then your relationship with your brother, Colin, and uh, what, what ha- you know, a little bit about the circumstances around his passing how you found yeah. out and then how that completely shifted. And I know I'm, 
I don't want to I don't want to spoil your movie either because I want people <laughs> to see it. But because uh, it will find out more details. But if you don't mind sharing um, that as well, please. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, something I don't get into, like, too far in the movie rabbit trail wise is like, you know, nuances of our relationship just because it, it's it was, not it. And you don't have to, if even for the podcast purposes, you don't have to. It's totally no, I, you know, I'm happy to, to talk about it. I mean, it's um, I don't get in, into it in the movie as much because it's uh, it's not really a documentary about our relationship, mm-hmm. um, which if it was, then, you know, there'd be a lot more there. But yeah, I mean, he was uh, four years older than me. And uh, there is. I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I tell, uh, told, I realized this actually like six months ago. Um, I think when you have siblings, they impact these like early vows you make in life. And I had made one sort of that, about my brother and you know, the, you, you make these vows because they are part of the early things that shape you, the early relationships that shape you. But one of them was, um, as my brother and I got older, you know, my brother, uh, we were just competitive. Um, I, I would say it was always a little more lopsided. Uh, at least it felt like that him towards me, you know, he wanted to make sure that he had, a, you know, this thumb on me and, um, that he was going to You're the be... middle, you're the middle child, right? Cause your sister is the youngest of the three of you. Right. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you know, as my brother, um, got older and, you know, got into drugs and started in a more serious way, um, you know, that was probably around like, you know, getting into college, 18, 19, 20. Um, he tried to like loop me into some of his shenanigans. Right. And, and I was probably pretty judgy of him at the time. Cause I, you know, I saw some of what he was doing and I, it was just like, well, that's really gross to me. And, um, you know, of course he didn't like that, but I made this vow early in life that I was going to like, I was just going to be better than him. I was going to be better in career, be better in family life, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I had some innate desires there as well, but that was this like, um, unconscious driving force for a while. And and so I realized that that was part of the emptiness I had after he passed away was that that vow no longer held anything. And, and you, and I think people, probably don't realize how much those vows exist, um, especially with parents too. Um, I think it, at least one of your parents, uh, are, you're going to be like, and and it's oftentimes like if you're, you know, a woman, it's your mom, if it's your male, it's your dad, but, um, you, you have this kind of thing where you want (laughs) to, maybe prove them wrong to some degree or, or prove them right, you know, whatever it is. But when that person passes away, you're like, I feel rudderless now. What is it? And so I, I, that was one of those things where, you know, as we got into adulthood and whatnot, um, it was like, there are certain seasons in life where we are like really close and, and mind you, we're both like, building our families. He, he never had kids, but he was married for, um, over 10 years. Uh, but you, you know, you're building your families. I, we eventually lived in different States and, you know, he was in the military, so he actually, uh, moved around quite a bit. That was a layer of complexity, right? You know, you're coming home from, uh, he, he was in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so he's coming home and, um, has, you know, all sorts of really his own grief forms of trauma. grief there yeah grief and trauma yeah. associated that and how the and the tools he used were just not the right ones per se probably to cope yeah. with those emotions mm. yeah i mean he was uh certainly being medicated in a way that um and you know and even as i after i made the documentary and reflecting on it i'm like you know i'm kind of like talking about his grief but not directly well, that's that's what drugs are generally used for. You're like masking the need to um, address some kind of um, deep down issue that you have. You have, and, and you know, of course, uh, unfortunately, in um, military world, you know, these people come back and they're a wreck, and they prescribe them a lot of medication. Um, and of course, uh, unfortunately, a lot of it's like you know, fentanyl 
uh, related now. But uh, so, you know, I, as so as adults, it, it kind of became hard to like share wins in life with him. Um, you know, he could be happy um, for me, maybe sometimes. I had one really interesting experience actually on. Um, so in, in the beginning of the documentary, right, there's this like uh, footage on a cruise ship. And that was the last time I hung out with him, um, oh, yeah. which is partially why it's in there. And, and we didn't have much footage together, period. So that was really kind of funny that um so i i had a gopro on that trip he goes and buys a gopro as well because i have one <laughs> he didn't ever use it so it's from his perspective what's getting shot but we're at dinner one night and uh you know they have like a formal night on cruise ships and so uh of course he didn't dress up for some reason but my uh, my mom had this idea. She's like, I want let's go all around the table and say something nice about the person to your right. Well, I happened to be sitting on the right of my brother. And so when it came around to him, I was like, oh, what's he going to say? <laughs> something really cynical, maybe. I don't know. But he said something really sincere. And he's like, you know, I've always admired Preston's creativity and I wish I had that. And, uh, I just don't. And, um, and then he kind of, he, you know, he elaborated on it, uh, elaborated on it more. I'm like, well, that was a really cool, um, thing to say. So I know that if, uh, he could, you know, see all that I was doing, uh, it would be like <laughs> probably feed into his ego a lot and <laughs> you know, like, wow. But, uh, it, that was uh, a lot of sibling rivalry there. It's funny. Cause it. you didn't want to, you didn't want to <laughs> let him know how much that had moved you because you're like, well, I don't want to feed his ego, but it did move me. <laughs> yeah. It's like, but you know, Preston, as you're saying here, I'm like feeling really moved because that aspect of, uh, especially when you're, you have those dynamics and you're four years apart. I'm, I was two years apart from my sister. There's always the sibling rivalry. And as a sibling, mm -hmm. you remember those things yet at the same time, sometimes when you're grieving, it's really hard to share very candidly that, when you're grieving the loss of anybody, anybody, regardless, mm -hmm. we sometimes end up putting the memories uh, on a pedestal of everything that was just so perfect. And we sometimes mm. don't share the things that weren't. And so I want to first off acknowledge you for being so open of sharing about this dynamic that you have that is raw and real because we tend to not do that because we feel as if we're disrespecting those that have passed, but it, it isn't. Mm -hmm. It's honoring the trueness of the relationship as well. And that, that is just what it, what it was. And in, in amidst all that, there's still this constant love, right? Still, that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that because there's all these intrinsic kind of little dynamics in a family that the love is not there. The love was always there. So, uh, so thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, go ahead. So then, that was uh, the 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 part a little bit about then the dynamic. So tell us, uh, you were working. Um, where were you working at the time when you got? Uh, what kind of job? You said market. You had been into marketing when you got out. Yeah. Is that correct? So how did you feel? And uh, you, you were in that job. You get the uh, phone call of your father, uh, your brother's uh, passing. This is what mm -hmm. month of two thousand nineteen? what month mm, Febu February 2019 February yeah of 2019 uh how did um how did that news impact you and um yeah how 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 did you hear that news and how did it how did it kind of sink in yeah i mean so i was working in an environment where um it was really hectic tech job basically um you know most you hear about these tech companies that are like oh they have a one billion dollar valuation that you know which is some you know milestone they call unicorn status but um i it was like a the day after we had just publicly announced that we would um, these, the two biggest companies in our space were coming together and our company had bought theirs but wasn't really the case and so it's just, um, I had a mid higher up role there at the time, but it was just all like corporate hoopla, I guess. And, you know, when you're in a company like that, you are very, 
into the, I guess, the mental cycles of, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do anything for this company. And, you know, the companies you live, you know, eat and sleep it because you're so committed to climbing the ladder and all this kind of stuff. So I'm just really wrapped up in that. And, um, yeah, I came out of a meeting and, you know, basically was in my office and, uh, found out about it. And it, I, I think one of the first things that came to mind is I wasn't sure if he had committed suicide. And that was a huge question I had. Cause it was just like, you know, he's dead. Uh, we don't know what from, and yeah, I, so, and, and I, I didn't, I knew he had like different types of pharma, pharmaceuticals at the time. And, um, you know, my, um, my sister-in-law is candid about this now, but you know, she was kind of a codependent in that relationship because there was just so much of that floating around. So, you know, different mm -hmm. drugs being prescribed. And so it, was, it just, you would just, when I got together with him, I would, you know, he had his like military backpack he would carry around, but, and I always saw him taking random stuff, but I'm like, <laughs> I didn't really chastise him on what it was. I was just like, you know, kind of mental noted. Oh, there's kind of another thing, but, but yeah, so I found out about it and I was like, you know, I, I guess I just got to go home. Um, I need to leave here, left here. And I was actually carpooling with a friend at the time. And it was interesting because I, um, I walked in, I just walked into this meeting he was in and I said, Frank, yeah, like you got to come with me. You got to go. He's like, what's going on? I'm like, I have a family emergency. And he goes, okay. And he follows me into his office and I'm like, uh, my brother's dead. We got to go back. Oh, we got to go home. And he, and you know, he's just like, uh, uh, okay. You know, goes and grabs his stuff. And I, uh, I, I was actually driving. I didn't really ask him to drive, but, um, I, I kind of knew I had to at least keep it together to drive. You know, I didn't want to be going down the road, this basket case, but I, I think up to that point in life, um, I had, I had a certain perception or a certain, certain mode of operating that was, um, the, uh, around my emotions and how to handle that. And like, mind you, you know, I got married pretty young. I was 24 and I got married. I had, I started having kids, uh, pretty young by today's standards and I'm the sole breadwinner in my family. So, you know, that's a lot of, of pressure. And so I just developed this kind of shell and, when my brother died, it very much like this, you know, golden hammer hit that shell and made me start really questioning, um, eventually why I function the way I do and how I was ever going to process the loss of my brother in a way that was like, I knew deep down to be true because there was a time when I was songwriting where it was just raw all the time and because of you know life's responsibilities i again developed that protective shell and so that uh set off this uh certain uh, of course chain of events that's like something's got to be done preston thank you yeah go ahead we'll just take a second yeah When you um, when you're talking about then the part of finding out, so you 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 shared a little bit then of the shell that you had developed of protection uh, mm -hmm. in your life. Um, so when you find that when you found out, then you were still kind of feeling like you had this shell on for a little bit as a guard or a mask or however we want to call this armor <laughs> armor that we sometimes carry um that serves as well at times right in order like you said mm -hmm. as an mo as a mode of operation as the breadwinner as the parent as a you know a spouse uh so that you can kind of keep going and pro producing and having an income you sometimes put your emotions on the side 
Um, mm -hmm. So you are finding this news, you carpool with your friend, and you were here in Texas at that time, correct? I was in Washington, actually. Yeah. Oh, you lived in Washington then? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're in Washington at that time. And then when... Um, when did you did you fly that same day back home home as california um did you fly back that same day yeah i i think it was like the next day it was kind of conflicted right because i mean my my brother or, or my my wife knew my brother well um my for my especially my oldest daughter she knew my, my brother pretty well um they you know with they didn't see him a ton, but uh, we talked about him, got pictures of him, FaceTimed him, that kind of thing. So I'm kind of conflicted because I'm like, well, my wife and my kids are my priority number one, hands down now. I don't want to like, you know, just abandon them in the middle of this. And so I, I just kept in touch with my family. And at a certain point, I was talking to my dad. He's like, you need to be down here. You need to come be with us. They were in uh, Southern California in the Palm Springs area. And, uh, yeah, I, I took this horrible connecting flight that got delayed through San Francisco. <laughs> you know, I, it dawned on me though, as, uh, so, you know, I, I take this flight out. My wife had a, uh, actually pretty, uh, severe panic attack on the way to the airport, uh, where we actually had to pull over on the freeway and like change drivers for the, the last like five minutes of the drive. Cause all this was sitting, uh, you know, hitting her that, you know, death and I have to go leave for who knows how long to deal with my brother. And she's got three kids that she's got to, you know, look after. And, but as I was walking through the San Francisco terminal, uh, getting my connecting flight, um, I just, it dawned on me how many people you could just see and, no, you you have no idea what they're going through. Zero clue. And and I, I'm just listening to music, trying to or talking to someone. Um, my probably my sister on the phone, you know. So that that was kind of a strange um realization. But yeah, I went down there and I was there for about a week, but you know, that week was very um you know, my, my parents were, of course, you know, basket case, even my dad, you know, who's, who, uh, you know, I probably learned a lot of my emotionality from, he was a wreck. Um, of course his, his wife was, um, and I, and I went and, you know, I had a nice experience with her where we, uh, I, I took her out to some hike in Palm Springs and we just kind of walked around and reminisced about my brother and then went and found some like high point and, and prayed, uh, over her and, and the situation, but I still felt like I was, uh, not quite being allowed to, um, just be with myself and what I thought, right. Because, you know, because this is an unexpected death. Um, and he was 35 when he died. So there's no, uh, preparation for those things. What are we going to do with the body? What are we going to do for a memorial? Who do we want there? Do we want anyone there? You know, all, all these strange, um, yeah, I'd say the business, business mode I, questions. Business, yeah. It's I, I call yeah. it, yeah, it's like you're still in that business mode around death. It's like all the, uh, yeah, it is. it doesn't really allow space sometimes for the grief because you're so busy with these, the calls, the this, the that, uh, making sure that you settle all this, yeah. It, yeah. So I, I can, I can relate to what you're saying. Yeah. <clears throat> it was, it was kind of interesting actually. We, um, of course there's a lot of people that reach out, um, in the middle of this where, uh, they go, well, let me know if there's anything I can do. And you know, some, some people want to send flowers and things like that. But, um, what unfortunately, so my, my brother was not great with finances. Um, we end up finding out that he had a lot of credit card debt and, uh, I'm like, well, uh, and, and my sister-in-law is working in the beauty industry. Um, you know, which is like a pretty, um, uh, it's not a high paying job. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Right. So she's kind of saddled with all these bills that cropped up and, 
yeah, there's some in some cases they'll expunge debt in case of debt, uh, mm-hmm. death rather. But uh, in other cases, they won't. So uh, there was just a lot of weird stuff there. But um, at any rate, we we started a GoFundMe just to be like, hey, you know, he didn't have a life insurance policy. But uh, we raised $25,000 for her. Um, and that was that was kind of interesting because I had to sit with her, hear her story. And then I sort of rewrote this um, narrative version of that for this GoFundMe. And we just shared it. And that was pretty cool to see. I mean, I had a, a lot of coworkers who donated to it, including the, you know, CEO and president of the company I was at. And then um, we, there's a lot of family and friends. And that, that was a really neat thing that came out of it, I guess, you know, I, in, that, in that week. But um, like in lieu of flowers, yeah. in lieu of flowers, it's like that, that, 50 bucks that you would get spent on flowers to send them to help uh, be able to pay some of these expenses, either of funeral or of debt that someone has left behind. You know, that is huge relief uh, for that family. So that is wonderful that you guys were able to create that for for her. Yeah, it's something I don't think a lot of people realize is that, you know, when when someone um, certainly dies unexpectedly and there's not, you know, uh, a, a large money reserve or something. A lot of people have cars, they have car loans, <laughs> you know, you have a house, you have a mortgage, you have, um, who knows what other, uh, other expenses yeah. going on. Um, medical ones are common these days and you know, how do those get taken care of? I mean, you're, um, I, I know one of her family members on her side were, you know, they're calling creditors and, you know, the, all the creditors are like, we need a death certificate. And so you're, mm-hmm. it's just it's very, uh, again, odd business things. You're like, well, how quickly is the body going to get cremated? And, um, okay, well, I need that death certificate to like settle these debts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? You know, just mm-hmm. kind of the most, uh, you know, the darkest form of like personal business that you ever really want to have to handle. Yes. And so yeah. And, and when you're exist. so... And when it's so fresh and you're having to deal with this, of the having to call and as you're doing these calls, like having to relive your, like having to say that they've passed away, that they've died and like relieve, mm-hmm. reliving your grief in those moments that are so, you know, cold. They're not going to say, I'm sorry for your loss. You know, like they're just like, <laughs> well, when can you get that paper here? And when, and then not, it's just so, mm-hmm. uh, so cold, right? Um, so yeah, that is hard to go through that when you're, um, when you're grieving. So let's shift a little then, uh, the Mm -hmm. direction as we're navigating this conversation and to thank you again for sharing those, um, nuances of all that occurred there. So you did decide, uh, I know based on your, uh, documentary, his, his body was uh, cremated. That was the choice you made then as a family. Um, mm. did you do any type of ceremony, uh, or, uh, memory memorial around, um, his death? And then from there, we're, we're going to then jump up to your process of grieving after that. With your yeah. Aunt. So we, we decided to do a memorial at this church that he had gone to, um, for celebrate recovery, which is, you know, like a faith based. Um, or it's hosted at churches a lot, but it's like a, it's almost like an NA Alcoholics Anonymous type group, but, uh, it was a place he'd, he'd gone to a lot for that. And yeah, no open casket. We did a, um, he got a military, um, uh, sort of like kind of ceremonial thing, that, mm-hmm. not where they shot guns in there. But this was actually probably the uh, hardest part of the whole thing for me. Um, so I, I'll, I'll say that uh, some it's almost like a wedding in some ways, uh, funerals can be the same where if you say like open mic night and mm. just say whoever can come up, say whatever they want, mm-hmm. it can kind of go south really quickly because mm. people ramble or they don't know what they want to say or things like that. So we... 
kept it very straightforward. And I think there are a couple of my guy cousins. So we had this group of guy cousins that um, we were all close with growing up. And then his like best friend from high school. Um, they all spoke, which was really cool to hear their stories. And then I did really the eulogy and, uh, that, you know, that was like a four or five hour process where, you know, I'm just trying to figure out how to summarize these parts of his life for a pretty broad audience. Right. I mean, people have known him, you know, they knew him when he was really young to high school to people, you know, adult, adult life. But I did, I did that. It was like a 25 minute eulogy and I used it. I didn't want to sugarcoat it. Um, I, I think in, in some ways when someone dies, um, at least like this from addiction, it kind of does a disservice if you don't address that elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. And my sort of message to everyone in the room was like the tragedy of his death is that it was entirely preventable. Um, and that, you know, it's, and, and that we all sort of make these decisions, um, maybe now, but they can snowball later into something that is deadly. And what is that? I just challenged the audience. I'm like, what is that that you have in your life that you're, is, is a habit that is not going to serve you and could lead to death and is, and is a decision that you're making every single day. What is that? I'm, you know, I don't know, but, um, and, and he had quite a few, um, he had a, an interesting group of people that he was friends with over time, you know, just because of, you know, his, his lifestyle and whatnot. And, uh, you know, a couple of them would come up to me and they're just like, you know, I, I, I'm having all these friends die left and right. I'm like, well, uh, you know, I'm, I haven't talked to you in years, but you know, I hope that, you know, it's kind of a wake up call. But, you know, also one real quick thing I was going to say about the sort of military um, uh, service that they did was so they go and they basically sound off their name and rank and then they get to him and they call for him, uh, Colin Zeller, staff sergeant, like multiple times. And of course, he doesn't say anything because he's not there. And that was like the, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm here, I'm like kind of conducting this whole memorial and like giving a, you know, long speech, but I, that happened. I was like, oh, guy, you know, it's, um, cause his military identity and, and, um, his like passion for that. I think that was the thing he was really most, uh, uh, passionate about in life, you know, proud about that service Mm -hmm. that was really tough to hear so um i think once so you know i spent a week um you know with my family came back and then i think it was maybe like eight days later i go back down again from the memorial and then once that has passed which i think most people probably find to be the case it's sort of like it feels as though that that should be this end of something, but it's not at all. And I certainly thought that it might be this end. And then you're just, you know, blindsided by uh, floods of different emotions all the time. And that's uh, essentially what just kept happening and kept happening and kept happening. So I'm like, well, the, none of this is done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, ultimately you go, well, you know, none of this will ever be quote done, but mm-hmm. what is, um, what's gonna help you process these, these emotions. So that's kind of where I got to. Dude, that's, so that is when that was the aha, like how many months? So February, 2019, he, he died. What mm-hmm. month did you say? Okay. I gotta, I gotta do something and that you decided to do it in this visual art project. And we'll go into that. Uh, and then the mm-hmm. research, cause in your, in, in your, um, which by the way, with the listeners, when, when this does get launched in the spring, uh, correct. It's in the spring of 20, yeah, yeah, that you plan on launching spring, it. Yeah. Um, you do talk, have uh, experts and so forth talking about 
grief as well. And you have information and data about uh, the aspect of grief too. So it's, it's a, it's a mixture of your own emotion and your own way of dealing with your, the grief of your brother, as well as intertwined with the, the science of grief per se, (laughs) the, the Mm -hmm. psychology of grief as well. So, um, so when, yeah, when did you decide, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. You had songwriting, you had kind of left that aside for a while. You were now more in the visual arts. So what made you choose to do that? Yeah, it was about six months later um, that I, you know, I was doing painting in between that, but I was doing these like bigger pieces and I did a series of uh, paintings, probably about nine paintings that were all kind of like this personal depiction of the aftermath of grief. And, uh, but it didn't really feel, it didn't really feel like I was processing the grief as much as I Mm could have, or just felt like this sort of, you know, well of inspiration. But, uh, I, I noticed a change in myself and, of course I go back to work and I, I don't care about any of it. <laughs> I'm just pretty, I'm pretty cynical, uh, at that point about all the, just, you know, the, the politics of people changes and hierarchy, all that kind of stuff, jockeying for positions. But, um, yeah, six months later, I just, I, I, have come up with this project and oddly enough, I visited Sedona, Arizona, I love right. Sedona. We've gotten, we've gotten two two Thanksgivings. We've gotten already there. We love it. Yeah, it's it's really pretty. And I, you know, I'm not really the type that goes and like you know meditates in a vortex. That's not my bag. But um, we did visit there. Uh, ironically enough, I had my parents were in like Phoenix area at the time, and and I you know came away from that weekend, and one of the kind of like yeah those decisions was. Um, to do this year of painting and then also make some documentary of it uh, at the time. But I was aware of uh, the hundred day challenge of painting. And I, I knew for myself, I'm like, uh, I'm a pretty impatient person. So I said, I'm going to make, come up with this project that's going to be helpful, but also where it's going to challenge me in a variety of areas one of those being that I'm going to really have to commit to this, but I know, I know at the end, like at the end of it, hands down, it's going to have made me grow and I'm not going to have any other expectations beyond that. I don't think just that I'm going to do, I'm going to go through it and I'm going to really try to be, you know, present with how I operate through it. So then you started. So then how did you decide then the the fact that it was going to be a daily process and that it would end up being a mosaic at the end? Like, was that something in the plan or did you just mosaic? Is it, is it mosaic or mosaic? Is the S like more like a Z? Z mosaic? Like I, more like I, a Z? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I I'm say like, mosaic. If you're from like High England, maybe you say mosaic. I don't know. But either mosaic. way. Mosaic, I'll just say with the the mosaic, like, or did it just uh, after you had a few of these pieces? um, Because how big are each of the canvases that you would paint? How big was they're eight by eight by ten, eight by ten each one. So you started painting, and what kind of um, what kind of pro uh, what um. You see, I'm not an artist. I'm like, I'm like okay. what, what paint did you do? Acrylic? Did you do what? Like, what kind of yeah. uh, materials did you use? Yeah. So, well, to so the answer to the question on the mosaic, I, I think um, when I was originally coming up with the size, and I, I had done some like study pieces on eight by tens before, and I just found it to be like a um, pretty reasonable size. But I, I sat, I sat down. I'm like, okay, well, if, you know. I think when I was figuring out um, that I was going to do this for a year, uh, okay, well, if I do 365 and they're all this, you know, I was doing all the calculations. <laughs> you I'm like, like wow. <laughs> I'm like, this is, it's 202 square feet of, of painting. So I'm like, well, you, you could lay that out in a lot of different ways. Right. Um, but I, I'm, 
I think because of my film background, I'm partial to this like 16 by nine, you know, screen size that we, mm. um, we all kind of, we're, we're all accustomed to now. So, uh, yeah, I, I knew that that was kind of the size it would uh, roughly be, but you know, assembling it and whatnot, I didn't paint them of course with any kind of like, Oh, I'm painting this thing. The hypothesis for me was that if I'm painting them in an intuitive manner, um, and they're all, they're all coming from me. They're all about a similar subject that they will make something at the end. So it's kind of a reverse puzzle putting that together, but I experimented with a lot of stuff. I mean, um, so mostly acrylic paint, different kind of, you know, uh, flow, heavy body, medium body using, um, thickeners. Uh, I use, uh, actually rubbing alcohol a lot. Um, and that does different things with like breaking apart the, the pigments. Uh, I, I use an air gun quite a bit as well. Um, I use actually charcoal and I'll grind up charcoal and do different things with that. Um, and then of course the, uh, last painting had his ashes in it, which was, you know, partially what inspired what I'm doing now, which is painting these basically grief paintings for other people using mm. ashes at times. So that's, that's partially where I kind of got the idea for that. So I didn't know that that's what you do. I didn't realize you were doing that now for others. Uh, but yes, that part where you were doing that piece, because of course I got a preview. I got a preview of the documentary <laughs> as, since I'm interviewing you. But that piece where you're painting that canvas and uh, you're talking about like the people of the, a little bit right of the, it, you had a resum something regarding the people of the eye and so forth as you're drawing this. How, 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 did you feel in that moment as you're touching these ashes and this other material that is not paint any at that moment, mm -hmm. it's, you know, yes, you use paint, but it's not, uh, charcoal. It's your brother's. What, how were the emotions at that point? Cause this is a whole year later than mm -hmm. pretty much this last piece. More, it was sorry, a whole year later after you started. So it'd been probably what a year and a half or so after his passing. So, what were the emotions that were coming up? And did that shell that you had put on for years before of dealing, did that shell start kind of shedding little by little as you're drawing each of painting each of these pieces? Yeah. Well, each, uh, I'd say certainly each piece or like, you know, sets of the pieces were, they were a reflection point. I actually had, um, in, in front of my uh, screen at the time in my office, I had like a rolling 30 days of every single painting. Mm -hmm. So I would change them out every single day and it gave me like this visual progress of what I was doing. And, you know, there, I mean, certainly times where I dealt with anger issues, uh, times where I was uh, maybe more depressive, times where I felt like I was more joyful, times, you know, just kind of that roller coaster of emotion. Mm -hmm. And uh, I could see that um, in the paintings, at least, you know, when I was looking at them, um, and you know, and then the last one that, that whole day was kind of bizarre cause I was sort of unusually just really exhausted. Um, so much so I, I took off like practically a half day from work and, um, just slept and, and then I, you know, kind of got, I think the anticipation of doing the last painting was, mm. was probably pretty emotionally overwhelming. And then, I, yeah, I just happened to, uh, I, I had the ashes. I knew I was going to use them. And, you know, I had never handled ashes before that point. Uh, I don't think most of us do, right? Even if you get ashes, they're in a box. And, you know, you might look at them once. And then otherwise they're sitting in a box. And so I had them in a mason jar. And I opened it up and I'm kind of like sifting through these ashes. Um, and, it's, and it's very bizarre. I mean especially when you're considering who it is, um, that you're handling, it's, it's literal physical remains of someone like that is, I had been given other items that he owned from my sister-in-law. And those were kind of like, some of them were kind of special, you know, I had like a knife or a shirt or something like that. But then you're like, Oh, well, this is, this is him. This is who he was. This is the person I grew up with mm -hmm. in a jar. Um, it's, it's a very strange thought. 
And so I'm like, okay, well, how, you know, perfect this is that, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm putting them sort of back into this like image in my mind of who he, um, how I looked at him because you know, that the eyes are always, um, especially when someone uh, has substance abuse issues, you're always looking at their eyes cause that's a, a dead giveaway, you know, are they on something? So I put those, you know, kind of back into his eyes, so to speak. And yeah, that'd be, that that was just a, a, a really kind of crazy way to end that series of paintings, but very um, poetic in a way because it, yeah, it gave this idea of, you know, what if I did this for other people? And, you know, there there could really be something there as well. So, yeah. Wow. So how did that, okay, so you put the piece together, then how did you, you had a showing, uh, was it family, friends, who came to see your mosaic, and it's huge, and that was a huge task in itself, putting that up, and yeah. people can see that when they watch the film, but how, um, how, how was it uh, received? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it depends on people's state of mind when they come see something like this. Um, I've had uh, like a utility worker in here or like we redid part of our kitchen and people just stand back and go, oh my gosh. People, and the cool thing is people who like, they don't speak English, right? Like if that, like a, like a Hispanic worker. Ay, Dios mío. Ay, Dios mío. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That yeah, would be basically me. that, right? <laughs> there you go. And he just, he just, sta- uh, like, it, it, there's no telling how it's going to impact people. Mm. Um, and I've had people over to my house a bunch of times who are just friends and, you know, they'll sometimes just stand back and stare at it. Um, cause it's a lot to look at. I mean, cause it's, it it's by it 10, kind of its, its own. It's 10 image. feet by 20 feet. Correct. Now as it's hanging, right. is that correct? Yeah. 10 by 20. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it just, it's a lot to take in and there's of course this, uh, light show component to it as well. And, uh, we have had some, uh, people over who I, I know have lost somebody and, mm-hmm. uh, they are, uh, like it hits them particularly because they know what it's about. You know, I, I usually explain to people like, Hey, here's what this is. Um, you know, I don't, I don't explain it to everyone. Uh, some people have just been like, like, Oh my gosh. Uh, people always want to take a picture of it too. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, can I take a picture? I'm like, yes, don't post it anywhere. <laughs> Keep it on your phone. <laughs> but, uh, I, I think just sharing it has been really cool with people. I mean, my hope is that it will end up somewhere, a lot more public than my house mm-hmm. um, and, and really be a true exhibit that people can kind of see and experience. But uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's unique at the end of the day. And it's just, it's my, uh, of course, take on, you know, that like first initial really intense period of grieving. But uh, when people, I think, get to understand what it's about and, and point out things that, uh, you know, small paintings in there that, the that appeal to them and they'll start dissecting little parts of it. It's just really neat. It's fun to share. And it, and it, it's sort of so far has really validated that initial hypothesis I had too, of just using art as this visual tool to relate to other people, um, in the grief experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, normalizing, that's one of your goals now as well, is normalizing this conversation about grief, which is the whole reason behind even the, this podcast too, is the normalizing yeah. this conversation. So um, take us then into how it is people can contact you and be able to have, one, first of all, if they did want a commemorative piece done for their loved one, if they wanted to use the ashes or if there's other ways in which you could do a commemorative piece and other, other forms that, um, yeah, like Instagram week, we'll put all that information below, but ways in which you're able to aid someone in their process with your art. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so, I mean, the the process in and of itself is, um, and the, people can have ashes or not have ashes, it, and it doesn't. It's not like a prerequisite. I think the point, part of the point of doing these kinds of paintings, right, is, um, you know, most most people are really relegated to like a tombstone or or they just have the ashes. So it's kind of one or the other. And what what I do is I essentially go through with somebody and really we dig into like this relationship they had with this person. Um, and it, it really harkens back to this, you know, this other thesis I have that in order to commemorate the memory of a loved one, of a loved one, you need um, stories of this loved one, you need a strong emotional connection to this person. And then you have basically a, a some kind of something to commemorate them by. And so when we go through this process, we kind of pull out all these emotions and this story they have about this person. Um, and then we go through a process of looking at, you know, previous paintings that I've done. And they, you know, we, we kind of like collaborate on the spot of what colors remind them of this person. And, and that's very specific to them because it's their perception of color. Um, but then techniques that I've done, um, that's the trippy thing about having all these paintings too, is um, there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of express that emotion. And then by the end of that, I you know have this really, um, this sort of template for how I'm going to go and you know, kind of approach the canvas. But the whole point is, it's it's abstract, right? So I'm not we're not doing, you know, a portrait, we're not doing, you know, the, the house you grew up in. Mm -hmm. It's abstract. And what I've found through abstract, right, is it changes over time. It changes over time for how you feel about it and how you look at it. And to me, that's really emblematic of the grief journey. Um, you're not just trying to have this like still snapshot of who the person was or who you are. You're you're getting and that's why we, we get it, get so much information on the person um, in their relationship is you get that. And then I'm sort of like the conduit for translating that into a canvas. Um, and then you, you have that and then you can hang that wherever you want in your house. And I usually go and I'm like, you know, where do you want to hang this? But someone could move or paint, painting around wherever they want. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of that is you don't have to go visit a gravestone. You don't have to um, just leave these. Uh, especially if there's ashes in it. The ashes aren't just sitting there in a box. Um, or it, let's say you're like, oh, I'm going to go spread their ashes in you know, some place. There's a lot of ashes after someone dies. Mm -hmm. um, you can use those in different ways, you know, and this could be one of them. But over time, again, the gist is like you have this pain that you can reflect on and you're going to see in different ways. So... Um, yeah. And I, and I mostly do that now. People just, you know, I chat with them through Instagram or Facebook. That's the primary way. And then, and then it's just, it's becomes a very like one-on-one -on -one conversation. So it's so, it's so beautiful. And, and it's so interesting to see the direction in which a life just goes when something happens. Like, would you have thought two year, two and a half years ago that you'd be now, no, two years, because he passed away. Wait, three years ago. Almost right? three, yeah. Mm. Almost three years in in February. So, uh, would you have seen yourself doing this, you know, prior to his passing? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> no. it, it took you no yeah. at all, right? It's like it took you into a whole other direction and uh, in of your life and these really pivotal moments. So, before we close off, what are some words or something that I might have not asked that you'd still like to share with the audience as we're wrapping up? Yeah. I mean, I, so I spend a lot of time in like different grief, uh, groups and like hashtags and whatnot, and just talking to different people. Um, and so I, I've, I've kind of in my mind noticed, uh, some things in, in the grief process as I, they feel like patterns, but, um, and, and Lindsay said this well in the documentary, right? Because, I mean, she's been in, in this in a clinical mode for over a decade. But I think people like that have grief and it's going somewhere. And 
where is it going? Like how, in what way are you like seeking not just to process it, but kind of understand yourself better. And that's why I kind of have this message at the end of the documentary, which is like, you know, turning grief from this negative thing into being this like, you know, spiritually healing thing of, um, we don't have, like, you don't have to feel as though you're, um, wallowing in darkness the whole time because it's Mm -hmm. like, it's going to live with you as long um, as you're around. Uh, but that there's something you do that's proactive because I think the more anyone who has grief can be proactive about that grief, that's just an encouragement to the next person who goes, Hey, I can come out of this and be, and be well, you know, I'm the person's gone, but, um, you know, I know it's not as cut and dry. It's not flipping of a switch, but uh, there's a way we live our lives. I think that can be helpful for others to see that there's, there's hope there. Right. Absolutely. You know, when we were going to start the conversation and I said, wait, wait, let me just start recording because I, there was something I wanted to tell you, but I'm like, I just wanted to say it uh, it, during the interview. And as you're saying this, I I want, want to reflect on this is the fact of time, right? That element of time that yes, it's been only close to three years as we're recording this um, podcast um, of his passing yet is what did you do with that time? And, and, in your grief and what you said about, you know, uh, the grief therapist in the, in the documentary sharing about that, it's really so important is if you take basically some kind of control of your grief (laughs) of the, Mm -hmm, uh, the, the, what you do in your mourning process, mourning is like things you can do with it and grief just happens. So what are you doing to mourn the, the death of a loved one? And as you're doing that, it will make time kind of that grief process kind of shrink and consolidate because you're actually in action mode. And that's what you were doing for the, you know, past year and a half. You were in action mode doing something with your grief. And therefore, these three years could seem like it had been 10 of processing a Mm. grief journey. Right. Well, there's this whole idea, too, that, uh, you know, when you're thinking about, I'm going to learn a new skill, whatever mm-hmm. it is, which, you know, kind of, I would think grief kind of falls in that category as well. There's this whole idea that there, you know, we've all run across people who say, oh, I've been doing this for 20 years, whatever it is. And that in and of itself is kind of a crappy barometer because- <laughs> yeah. How many hours do- of those 20 years? <laughs> Well, that, that, and you could, it's the quality, it's like the quality of the practice, right? You could do 20 years of the first year of practice and you're still sucking that, you know, Mm -hmm. going into the second year of learning something. Um, so just the, the quality of that practice, what is it? And I I would, you know, certainly think the same thing about grief, uh, you know, the quality of that time you're spending about grief. And that's the thing about, you know, when you're just letting time pass, and you're just hoping it gets better over time because that's some silly cliche we have. Like mm-hmm. you're not, you're, you're in, you know, X number of years of just starting the grief process. Mm-hmm. So, uh, hopefully, you know, <laughs> you come to that realization that like, Oh gosh, like you said, you know, take control of the grief and in a, in a way that is, um, healthy and, and suitable yes. for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we know already what can happen as well. We, you know, we've seen the, and you've experienced it firsthand, what some, some people um, can do when they're dealing with grief or trauma in a way that is not conduit to, um, to it being healthy, because you, you had it firsthand with the death of your brother. So, um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, so definitely taking, taking some little control over the things that we have no control over. We have no control over the death of someone yet. We do Mm -hmm. have a little of aspect of control as to how it is we choose to navigate, um, the expression of our grief in certain parts of our life so that when it does come like a wave tumbling us down, we've already developed some kind of tools as well as to how to navigate it in those moments. So. Um, thank mm-hmm. you so much, Preston. And it's been such a, a beautiful conversation. Um, got some moving parts here and me, so we moved some 
aspects of my of my being relating to the death of a sibling, uh, as you were sharing. And I uh, I appreciate you being so vulnerable as well, and uh, and sharing your your heart with us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Kendra. And I was um, I appreciate the opportunity just to share this. I hope it's helpful for people. Yes, thank you. And again, we were speaking with Preston Zeller and uh, his documentary, The Art of Grieving, will be out in the spring. And you can check out uh, the link to how to get a hold of him. But if you are just listening to this, um, you can do you can find him on Instagram at Preston Zeller or um on his website, theartofgrievingfilm.com to find out more. Thank you once again. Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode and if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this please do so also if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well please reach out to me And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.